And now Rhys is going to read to us from the Word of God. The reading tonight is uh, from 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 4 to verse 17. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. It's my pleasure tonight to introduce to you the Reverend Bill James, who's the pastor of Emmanuel Church in Leamington Spa. Bill and his wife Sharon um, have been long supporters of the Christian Institute and have always made us very welcome in their church and in their home. So it's delightful to invite him back tonight. I thought it would be good tonight if Bill said a little bit to, to us tonight about his church, about his interests and his concern, before he talks to us tonight about the chosen theme, the gospel for the nation. So, Bill, can I just hand over to you and welcome. I'm very grateful uh, for your invitation. Sharon and I uh, have been settled in uh, Leamington Spa now for about 20 years. Um, I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Evangelical Church there. Uh, Emmanuel was planted about 25 years ago. Um, it sprang out really of the ministry of Peter Jeffrey, known to many of you, I suppose, at Rugby Evangelical Church, just about 13, 14 miles um, up the road. And there were three families in Rugby who uh, the Lord laid a burden on their hearts that they, there should be a, a church with biblical ministry in uh, Leamington. So through prayer and through preaching rallies, a church was planted there with about 30 founder members um, about 25, 26 uh, years ago. It's just been lovely to see uh, the church growing and developing. And so uh, if ever you are passing through Leamington Spa, and you all pass through Leamington Spa, everyone passes through Leamington Spa because it's the geographical centre of England. Um, I think that's almost literally true. I think actually that the the geographical truth, um, according to your sat-nav, is none-eaten. But nobody wants it to be none-eaten. 
So in Leamington Spa, we have the, the, the Royal English Oak, and we are determined to maintain that we are the geographical centre of England. So you pass Leamington, and when you pass through, you must come and uh, visit us in the church. Uh, it's our delight uh, in the church to have a number of uh, uh, students from Warwick University, a uh, number of um, undergraduate students. I suppose we have about 40 coming now on a Sunday morning. And uh, one of the things we're doing with them is on a Sunday afternoon, we're taking them through uh, The Truth Project, which is a DVD series produced by Focus on the Family uh, in the States. And it's giving them a worldview on applying their Christian faith to all different areas of life. So we take our student ministry very seriously and it's a delight also to minister amongst international students. And we've had the privilege of seeing some students from mainland China and Japan and other places converted over the years. So that's been tremendous. And, and uh, it's lovely to see the encouragements that the Lord um, sends us. If you have your uh, Bible open at First Peter, the passage that was read to us, First Peter chapter 2, um, uh, we will be making various references to that as we go along. Uh, the theme of these uh, Christian Institute lectures uh, this autumn is the New Covenant. And of course, this goes uh, to the heart of our understanding of what it means to bring Christian influence to bear on modern society. I think that's the subject we're primarily concerned with, especially as we're thinking about the Christian Institute. And many of us are tremendous admirers of their work, and we desire that the Lord will bless and prosper that Christian influence in our days. Now, in Old Covenant days, it was all very simple when you thought about bringing godly influence to bear upon the nation. Because the physical nation of Israel was God's covenant people governed according to God's law. Uh, Israel was a theocracy um, in the sense that it was ordered by laws delivered direct from heaven. Uh, The king was appointed having a responsibility to read and to know God's laws and to rule accordingly. And when he failed to do so, he was rightly called to account by the prophets who reminded him and the people of their covenantal obligations. Now, in the New Covenant age, it's all very different. God's people is not a physical nation defined by politics or geography. On the contrary, we are now a scattered people within a largely pagan and ungodly world, where the nation-states are ruled by largely unbelieving people. So what now is the role of Christian people and the church in seeking Christian values in government, and legislation according to God's moral law. Should we just accept that the whole area of national politics and government is the domain of the world, while the people of God focus on our particular concerns for the gospel and the personal conversion of those around us who are without Christ? After all, the Lord Jesus Christ himself declared that his kingdom is not of this world, And so might we ask, in the New Covenant age, are thoughts of political power and influence misplaced? Should we just preach the gospel and abandon the political realm? And even if it is legitimate for us to seek some small measure of political influence today, what expectations can we have of making any real impact on the government and the politics of our nation? Because if the new covenant model is of a godly people scattered amongst pagan nations, then surely the expectation is that society as a whole will generally remain ungodly and remain at best ambivalent and more often hostile to Christian values. Well, these are the sorts of questions we're going to be looking at this evening. And what I hope uh, we're going to discover is that far from being a backward step, 
the transition from the old to the new covenant brings far greater opportunities for godly influence in the world. For whereas under the old covenant, God's people were limited essentially to one nation in one geographical location, now we are scattered strategically through all the nations of the world. And whereas under Moses, God's people were bounded by restrictive rules and regulations, which bonded them into a single cultural and ethnic group, separate from the other nations in the world, now in Christ, we are a people characterized by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, who can pervade and influence every area of human activity for his glory." And as we look at this theme, we're going to focus on the passage that was read to us, 1 Peter chapter 2, and particularly we're going to look at verses 9 down to 17, because they express so clearly the contrast between the people of God in the Old and the New Covenants. So first of all, we're going to look at the holy nation of the Old Covenant. Here in uh, these verses in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter is speaking to Christian believers about the nature of the church. And he's explained in the preceding verses that the church is defined fundamentally by the person of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is the creator of the church. He is the cornerstone. He is the capstone. It's only as we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ by personal faith that we are now being built together as the church, the new temple of God. We now become a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God. You notice how particularly in uh, verse 9, the Apostle Peter just lifts the imagery of Old Testament worship and he applies it directly to the church, the new covenant people of God. He is saying in in essence that the church is the new Israel, the new temple. And the application of Israel imagery Uh, continues where the Apostle Paul gives the names of Israel which were given at Mount Sinai. So all of those names in verse 9, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God are the sort of names that were lifted directly, for example, from Exodus chapter 19 when the Ten Commandments was given to the physical nation of Israel. And it's interesting in particular that the Apostle Peter calls the church a holy nation. Now, in Old Testament terms, it was very clear what it meant for Israel to be a holy nation. They were a nation in the conventional sense of the word, with defined physical boundaries in the land that God had given to them. They had a monarchy and political structures and organization characteristic of a nation state. And membership of the nation was defined by physical birth. That was how you got into the covenant. You were born to a good Jewish family, essentially. So the nation was literally the children of Israel, the physical descendants of Jacob and ultimately of Abraham to whom the covenant promises had been made. And they were a holy nation in the sense that they were set apart to God, but also they were physically separated from the other nations of the world. And much of the civil and ceremonial legislation for the Old Testament people of God was concerned to preserve their distinctive religious and cultural identity. So, for example, there was the whole system of the clean and the unclean. There were whole areas of life, including their diet, their dress, 
their agricultural methods, their civil organization prescribed by the law of God. And the effect of this legislation was to set them apart from the surrounding pagan nations. In fact, that was the whole purpose of the law. There could be no way that a faithful Jewish man or woman could become embroiled in the pagan customs or idolatry of the surrounding nations, not only because of the moral conflicts involved, but because those practices would have been entirely alien to the culture and the identity of what it meant to be Jewish. They were culturally and socially a nation which was holy to the Lord. Now, this sense of being a holy nation and set apart doesn't mean that they had zero impact on the surrounding nations or there was no missionary intent. The covenant promises to Abraham always envisaged that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. But the missionary model, if you like, was that Israel's holiness would prove to be intriguing and ultimately irresistible to the other peoples of the world. The light would shine out of Israel, you see, and it would be like a light that attracts the moth to the candle flame, although with hopefully not such destructive consequences. Israel was like a nation set on a hill, you see, and it was very attractive. And ultimately, in the revival days, the other nations would make pilgrimage towards the place where God dwells. It's set out so gloriously, for example, in Isaiah chapter 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. You see, they come to Israel and then they learn of the law of God going out from Israel. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And that was the way in which Israel fulfilled its priestly function to the nations. You know what a priest is? A priest is a man who stands between God and the world. Well, Israel as a nation was a kingdom of priests. And the nations of the world said, what is God like and how can we find God? And Israel stood there and they said, you want to know what God is like? Look at us. Look at the laws he's given us, which reflect something of his character and something of his glory. Do you want to know what it means to follow God? Look at us. We're living in a way that is pleasing to God. Do you want to know how to have your sins forgiven? Come to the temple. We'll show you all the sacrificial system and all that. You see, so that the law went out from Israel. That's a fundamental function of the priests, isn't it? They taught the law, as it were, to the nations as the nations streamed up to Mount Zion. And it was in Israel that the nations were to find the true knowledge of God. It's exactly the same picture as given, for example, in the prophecy of Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. See, if you like, it's a sort of centripetal uh, vision of world mission. You know what centripetal means. It sort of sucks everything in towards the middle. It's sort of a bit like a whirlpool. That was the idea. All the nations were going to be sucked in towards the knowledge of the glory of God. Uh, the classic model, if you like, is, is, is the Queen of Sheba, who makes pilgrimage there to King Solomon, and she sees him in all of his divinely given wisdom and the laws by which he rules, and she's just overwhelmed by the sense of the, of the presence and the blessing of God. And, and so the pagans come and pay their tribute, as it were. And indeed, many of those pagans became proselytes too. Uh, Judaism, there was always a welcome in the land, wasn't there, for the aliens and the strangers who came in and they became part of the, part of the culture. 
But to become a member of God's people, you had to become Jewish. It didn't matter who you were. You might be a Canaanite like Rahab of, of Jericho. You might be Ruth the Moabites. But if you were going to embrace Israel's God, then you had to become part of Israel's society. You had to become part of the system, if you like. There were rare exceptions, like Naaman. You remember the, the, the general from Aram who was converted through the ministry of, uh, of Elisha. You remember when he was cleansed of his leprosy? But even then, when he went back to Aram, there was the extraordinary spectacle that he took with him some bags of soil from the land of Israel. So in a sense, there is a corner of Aram that is forever Israel, because in a sense, he, he worshipped then as a Jew in Israel on that little patch of Israel that he created in the middle of Aram. That, that was the way the system worked, essentially. Now, uh, I just want to observe at this point that, that obviously, we all know this now, don't we, that the whole system failed, didn't it? The whole system failed. It all ended in tears. Um, some people say today, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a Christian nation? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a Christian government? Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a country which is governed by God's laws, by the Ten Commandments? Isn't that the ideal? Isn't that what we're striving for? Isn't that why we give money to the Christian Institute? Because that's what we're hoping that Colin and the others are going to achieve in the next five or ten years. And then we're going to live in this idyllic situation where we're all living and British laws correspond exactly to God's laws. And then we will live in the perfect society. Um, no. That's been tried. Done that, doesn't work. You see, think of Old Testament Israel actually as the ultimate social experiment where God sets apart a people for himself and he gives them every opportunity, he gives them every privilege. He gives them their own land, which is extraordinarily fruitful land. It's a lush land, it's a fertile land, it's a land in which they can prosper and increase. He promises them that they can have victory over their enemies and their borders will be secure. He gives them his laws from heaven. He gives them all the government structures. He gives them all the religious structures. He gives them every way to live. He provides everything for them so that they can live the ultimate paradisical existence. We know what the result was. It was judgment. It all very rapidly went wrong. Why? Very simply because they were unregenerate. You see, the answer is that if you are a people, it doesn't matter how good your government structures are, it doesn't matter how brilliant your legislation is, the lesson of Old Testament Israel is that if the people in government have unregenerate hearts, if the people in the nation have idolatrous hearts, it doesn't matter how good the laws are, Actually, people are going to go and be idolatrous, they're going to go and be immoral, they're going to be unfaithful to God, they're going to follow the desires of their own heart. That ultimately is a model of social order. Actually, it fails at the first hurdle. But you see at least what was intended, the model that was being set up. The idea was that Israel was going to be the holy nation with these clear boundaries not only religious boundaries, but also cultural and social boundaries and even geographical boundaries which mark them out as the distinctive people set apart from all the other nations of the world to be the model nation to which all the other Gentile nations would stream. Now you see, all of that works up to a point when you're God's people living in God's land as God's nation. But then it becomes a real problem trying to operate that when the judgment comes and the exile comes, and now as a Jew or a Jewess, you're scattered to all the other nations of the world. And you say, well, hang on, how can I live for God now? 
That's what happened at the time of the exile. You see, for Israel, it was a complete and total disaster because to be God's people was synonymous with being a nation-state, living in the promised land and worshipping at the appointed place, the temple. So how do you function when the temple's been demolished and you're living in a pagan land under a pagan emperor called Nebuchadnezzar with one of the most repressive regimes in, in world history? Well, an example of the sort of tensions that happen, which develop in that situation, are given in the book of Daniel. You remember that Daniel and his young teenage uh, friends were made eunuchs, and they were taken into exile and joined to the civil service in Babylon. And they struggled. Well, how are we going to live now as good Jews in this, in this compromised situation? And the first area of conflict was over food. That's no coincidence because the food laws were right at the heart of what it meant to be clean or unclean. The food laws marked you out as a distinct people. Basically, you were circumcised if you were a male Jew, you kept the Sabbath, and you only ate clean food. These were the sort of sociological boundary markers, if you like. And now Daniel and his friends couldn't just eat their kosher food. They had to eat what their pagan captors served up. And so Daniel and his friends decided to take a principled stand and to eat only vegetables. It's not clear that uncleanness of the food is the only issue because actually probably the vegetables have been offered to idols too. Perhaps the main point is that they didn't want to express fellowship by eating from the king's table. And the effect of that decision was to become a closed little mini Israel, a little mini Jewish community, enjoying table fellowship with one another apart from these ungodly Babylonians. So they remain a people set apart, even though they're now living in a pagan land. But life would have been difficult for those exiled Jews in all sorts of ways, simply because things regarded as unclean according to the law would have been commonplace in the society where they now lived. And the temptation would have been first to withdraw, or then secondly, perhaps to become somewhat hostile to this surrounding, ungodly, alien culture. Well, it's been said, and rightly, I think, that this unsatisfactory state of exile continued right through until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I know a remnant of Judah was allowed to return to the land, wasn't it? But when they did return and the temple was rebuilt, it was only a shadow of its former self. You remember the elder men wept as they saw the smallness and the the paltry character of the temple being built. And, and from then on, they were always under the shadow of pagan oppression, whether it be under the Greeks or under the Romans later on. So in a sense, they were still in exile. They didn't have ultimately their autonomy in those days until the coming of Christ. So Israel has to start getting used to the idea of singing the Lord's songs in a strange land. And what's happening is the foundations are being laid now for the new covenant age. That's what's being suggested in the revolutionary command of God in Jeremiah chapter 29, where God commands them, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Well, that's the pattern which will be embraced and established with the coming of the Christ. Now, now you see, this is the pattern now of new covenant living. Living as a holy nation, but in the midst of an ungodly nation. So now we come to our second point, which is the holy nation of the new covenant. Now see what the Apostle Peter says again about the nature of the church. He's lifted all this language from the Old Testament, you see. He describes us now as being a holy nation... 
But you can see this means something rather different than it did to the physical nation of Israel. Yes, we've become the people of God. You see that in uh, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. But now we've become the people of God, not now by physical birth, as in the old covenant regime. No, you don't enter, enter the new covenant by physical descent. Peter explains you only become a member of God's new covenant people through being joined in living union with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living stone. We are all naturally speaking dead stones. I mean, I think the illustration speaks for itself, doesn't it? A stone is dead by the nature of the case. It's only when it's joined to the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, that it becomes alive and part of the New Testament temple of God, i.e. the church. He says back in chapter 1 and verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, You see the polemic against the idea of physical descent being key to the idea of church membership or entering the new covenant. Not of perishable seed, he says, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, there has been a supernatural new birth that has taken place in your hearts, and so now you are joined to God's new covenant people, and you have a new covenant identity. And not only has that bond of covenant by blood family been undermined, but also the idea of God's covenant people being a political entity, a nation state, has been undermined. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the whole setting of, of the letter, if you like, where the apostle Peter says, Peter, an apostle from Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered you see, it's, 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 it's the complete opposite of being a socially separate people, uh, scattered throughout the world. Literally, what, what the Greek says is elect sojourners of the dispersion, which emphasizes the fact that they pick up where the exile of Israel left off, scattered throughout the nations of the world. So what the Apostle Peter is saying is now you are God's people just as much or more than the Old Testament Israelites, But your identity as God's people is not now defined by a distinct social or political structure, but a distinct moral and spiritual identity. Look at what the Apostle Peter says in verse 11 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. That reference to aliens and strangers is a clear reference back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 23. You remember after Abraham and Sarah went to this land they they did not know and they were just sort of pilgrims wandering around in tents. Abraham says to the Hittites, he says, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so I can bury my dead. And the apostle Peter is saying to people now in the New Covenant Church, they're saying that's the model of what it means to be a member of God's new covenant people. It's the original pattern of Abraham. Now, perhaps that picture of Abraham isn't isn't very appealing to you. A man, after all, who lived in tents all his life, who didn't own any property apart from a burial site, and who wasn't really at home in the land in the sense of having a settled existence. 
Perhaps we like to think of Abraham as being a sort of rather transitional state, looking forward to the better, much more satisfactory and settled existence of Israel in the land, in their own land, having their own governmental structures, their own politics after the Exodus and after the conquest. That surely is the ideal. The Apostle Peter says, no, 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 no. Abraham is the model of what it means to be the new covenant people of God. It's the Mosaic order of the nation state of Israel, which is the parenthesis, as it were, in the purposes of God. The new covenant is a recovery of the original intent of God's covenant with Abraham. So what Peter is saying is that just as Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and founder is God, so we are aliens and strangers in a pagan and ungodly world looking for a heavenly city. That's what it's like being a Christian today. That's what it feels like being a Christian today. You and I know that, don't we? It feels like being a stranger. You know, we're not a, you know, society derides us because of our faith in Christ, doesn't appreciate our moral values, derides us for our attempts at godliness and our, our, our statements on moral issues, whatever it might be, and they ridicule us because we don't belong, and we feel sometimes as if we don't belong. The Apostle Peter says, yes, exactly. That's exactly what it feels like to be in the world. That's what Abraham felt like, an alien and a stranger. See, it doesn't mean then that we sort of back off and we say, oh, well, I'm only interested in my home which is in heaven. I'm only interested in dying and going be with the Lord. I'm indifferent now to the moral values or the well-being of the society and the nation in which I live. No, it, it doesn't mean that at all. We'll come back to that later on. But it does mean that we never feel truly at home in the world because our moral and our spiritual values are different to the values of the world in which we live. Now, you look back to... 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, for example, that's made very clear. This element of being strangers is an element of our spiritual and moral character. 1 Peter 1.17, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. In other words, in, in godliness, in a way that will please your father, not the society around you. We are citizens of heaven, you see. Our identity is defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you see, it was the same in the first century. It's the same in the 21st century. We know that there are always pressures upon us to feel as if we belong. This whole, this whole matter of identity and fitting in is very powerful. It's very powerful amongst teenagers, isn't it? You know, you have to wear the right clothes. You have to have the right mobile phone. You have to speak in the right way. You have to use the right slang. You have to hang out with the right people because your identity depends on all of those things. And all of those things carry through with us into into middle age and beyond, we just find more subtle ways of expressing it, but the way in which you dress and the, the, the place where you live and the sort of house you have and the sort of car you have and the sort of career you have and how much you earn and the sports teams you support and all of that, you see your identity is, is defined by where you fit in to society. And the Apostle Peter is saying, no, 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 don't think like that. You are an alien and a stranger. Your identity is defined by your living union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one you should be interested in pleasing. Frankly, all of these things are of secondary importance. It doesn't matter whether you're a northerner or a southerner. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you're young, young or old. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white. Whatever it might be. The only thing that matters is you're in union with Christ and you are seeking to please him. And the point is that all the boundaries of Old Testament Israel, of the clean and the unclean, which created social separation, are gone. 
The Apostle Peter uses the word purify in chapter 1 and verse 22 when he says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. That's the same word purify as the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament text, the Septuagint, used of ritual consecration of the Levites or washing or ceremonial purity in the time of Moses. But you see, the Apostle Peter says, now in the New Covenant age, it doesn't have any of those meanings. You purify yourself by believing the gospel. You purify yourself by obeying the truth. That's what purity means. So that's what it means to be a holy nation, not sociologically distinct now, you see, but morally and spiritually distinct, even though sociologically we're mixed in with the pagan environment in which we live. And we are a coherent nation now as God's people, not in the sense that we have our own structures of government and political power and authority and organization, but we are a nation in the sense that we have a heart-loving commitment with other members of the new covenant people of God. You see that again in chapter 1 and verse 22. At the end of that verse, you have a sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. You are a holy nation. So that's what sets us apart. That's what's distinct. You read through the New Testament, and we are encouraged again and again to mix with the society of the ungodly. Uh, The only table fellowship which the Apostle Paul forbids is participating in pagan idolatry, which obviously would compromise our spiritual identity in Christ, or having fellowship with those who claim to be Christians but are openly immoral or false teachers. Now, We can't deny it's a struggle, isn't it, as a Christian to retain a distinct identity as aliens and strangers in the land. Our problem is very similar to that of the Jews in Old Testament times. And sometimes there is a temptation for us as Christians to adopt what we might call the Daniel solution. In other words, to retain a distinct social identity by refusing table fellowship with these ungodly pagan Babylonians or Brits or whoever they might be. So that philosophy of social separation is sometimes seen in Christian circles. We maintain our holy identity by some means of social or cultural apartness. So we might draw the line in different places, whether it be the cinema or whether it be the dance hall or whether it be drinking alcohol. I don't want to be critical of any of those mores because we might well conclude that certain films or ways of dancing or drunkenness are indeed immoral and unacceptable from a biblical point of view. But what I'm talking about here is a sort of blanket condemnation so that whole areas of cultural and social activity simply become no-go areas for Christians. You know, it's like when you're encouraging your, your teenage Christian son or daughter to choose their degree course or whatever it might be. You say, well, no, 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 please don't go into journalism. Christians don't go into journalism. No, 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 don't become a policeman. No, no, there's all sorts of pressures. Oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. No, be a teacher, be a nurse. That's, that's what Christians do, you see. You don't go to those nasty places where all those ethical compromises, and you certainly don't want to be a politician. Dear me, Lord, preserve us, you see. It's sort of blanket condemnation and whole areas of cultural and social activity become no-go areas for, for Christians because we don't go to the same places as the world goes. That's what I call the Daniel solution. It's what might be described as cultural fundamentalism or in extreme forms, the exclusive brethren. We have quite a lot of exclusive brethren around where I live 
And uh, in fact, now, our Sunday morning services, we meet in a, in, a, in a lovely new school facility, and right opposite us, over the road, is a meeting house of the exclusive brethren. We're never anxious that visitors to Emmanuel might go to the wrong place, because if they don't recognize you at the gate, or if they don't know your number plate of your car, they won't let you in. They have this big iron gate. They don't let you in even to the car park, let alone to the meeting. There are no windows in the exclusive brethren meeting hall. When I go around door to door, meeting people in the area, sometimes I come across the exclusive brethren, and delightful, polite people there, and I'm determined to engage them in conversation, even though they don't really want to talk to me. But they're not allowed to live in semi-detached houses because you can't share a party wall with someone who's an unbeliever, you see. They send their children to the local primary schools, but the children are not allowed to share table fellowship with the other children. So if you're making biscuits as your morning project and it comes to the end of the lesson and you all eat your biscuits, your exclusive brethren child can't eat his biscuit because that would be table fellowship with unbelievers, you see. You make friends with mum at the school gate, but she won't come in for coffee, you see, because that would be table fellowship with some... Well, I mean, even if it's a Christian, it's, not, it's the wrong sort of Christian, you see. Well, that's, it's like going back, you see, isn't it, to Old Testament Israel. It's setting up again the social boundary markers, you see. Well, that approach is not supported by the New Testament, is it? The Apostle Paul says, I don't mean at all that you should separate yourself from the immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, in which case you would have to leave this world. And the clearest example, positive example, is the practice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You remember that he scandalized first century Jewish leaders by eating and drinking with sinners. Now just consider that for a moment. Remember the background of the Old Testament purity laws. Remember the context of table fellowship within Old Testament Israel. That An expression of table fellowship was an expression of covenant fellowship. And these were prostitutes. These were tax collectors. These were people who didn't go to the temple on Sunday. Oh, well, it would have been Saturday, wouldn't it? Whatever it might have been. And you can understand, can't you, why, why the Pharisees and, and the scribes were scandalized by this. They didn't just have the background of the Old Testament. They had the background of the intertestamental period where they'd had all the Maccabees and the, the, the Greek pressure upon them to conform to pagan idolatrous ways. And they were determined to retain well within the letter of the law in terms of table fellowship. And here is Jesus and he comes. He's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and he's a friend of sinners. Well, there's no worse condemnation than you can have for the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is setting the precedent for the new covenant model. The social boundaries are gone. There is now no, uh, no more unclean food. We mix freely. We permeate. We are scattered through every area and every corner of pagan society. And the example of the Lord Jesus Christ is he was able to do that, eat and drink with the worst of sinners, and he remained pure and undefiled and without sin. And that's what we're supposed to do. Now, you see, the Jewish religious leaders just couldn't accept that. The whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is the priest and the Levite pass by on the other side. Because A, they don't want to contract ritual uncleanness with someone who's possibly about to die. And B, they don't want to go to the aid of someone who might turn out when they roll them over and dress them up to be a Gentile or, or you know, some pagan idolater. Because frankly, if you go to the aid of him and he gets better you're effectively aiding and abetting him in his immorality and his idolatry, aren't you? So they just don't want to be involved, so they walk on the other side. 
But Jesus scandalizes them because he commends then the Samaritan who goes to the rescue, you see, of this potentially unclean but needy soul. Well, you see, that's, that's the model of what new covenant Christianity is about. It's so different from the old covenant, isn't it? We mix in. We go to all the places. In fact, the Christians should be the pioneers of going to the places where even the non-Christians don't want to go. I mean, one of the great sadnesses was that Princess Diana, the Lord Blesser, you know, was best known for being one of the pioneers of going and shaking hands with an AIDS patient. The sadness to me is that it wasn't the Christians who were queuing up at the bedside to do that because actually that's exactly what Jesus would have done, isn't it, really? He goes to the unclean, he goes to the immoral, he goes to those who are socially excluded, he goes to the unacceptable, he goes to the down and outs of society, he goes to the places, frankly, no one else wants to go. He goes to the places where even the world considers to be beyond the pale. You see, that's, that's the model of, of new covenant, to mingle right into the depths of an ungodly society and to shine the light even into the very darkest places. Now, if the New Testament doesn't support social isolation from the world, an alternative approach indulged by some Christians is to engage with the culture. Oh, yes, they say we need to engage with the culture, but they engage with the culture in a hostile manner. And, uh, well, it, it's become, in the United States of America, it's become known as culture wars, hasn't it? So what you do is you draw up the lines on the key issues, like abortion or extramarital sex or the teaching of evolution in schools or whatever it is, and you literally go to war. So you assemble political power blocks and you try and overwhelm the opposition. So think, for example, of Jerry Falwell, who said in 2007 in the run-up to the presidential election of 2008. He said, evangelicals are the largest minority block in this country and I don't think you can win without them. Al Gore learnt that and Hillary will learn it in 2008. Now, that's a, that's a pretty good political threat, isn't it? I mean, that's wielding weapons, isn't it, really? We can understand that motivation of that approach. I mean, on one level, you can, you can sympathise with it, can't you? But you see, what he's really doing, he's going back to the Old Covenant model, isn't he? Old Testament Israel was a defined national political power block. And they, if they felt threatened by the pagan nations with their wretched, immoral and idolatrous standards, they'd go out and beat them up. They'd go out and defeat them, wouldn't they? Well, that's the sort of, well, I'm not accusing Jerry Falwell of fermenting violence, but you sort of get the, get the impression, don't you? So that's what we as Christians are tempted to do, to either socially separate from an ungodly world or to engage with a sort of cultural hostility. And I think obviously the cultural hostility is forbidden by the Apostle Peter here. He says, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every authority. See, honour the king. Verse 17 of chapter 2, show proper respect for everyone. Well, I don't think Jerry Falwell's been particularly... But I'm not going to stand in judgment of Jerry Falwell. But you get the idea. I think that's the model that's being presented in 1 Peter chapter 2. So what is the New Covenant model then for engagement with a pagan world? Well, let's look now at New Covenant identity. Let's draw some of the threads together and apply some of these principles to the, uh, to the text in 1 Peter. You see that we're a scattered people. You notice that again. Look back again at chapter 1 and verse 1. We're a scattered people. Now, that, that sort of hints, doesn't it, at political impotence and irrelevance. It doesn't, it's not very promising, isn't it? Oh, there's a few believers scattered through all these different nations and, and regions. 
The NIV translation isn't, isn't very brilliant, or at least it doesn't say what I want it to say. But what the, what the Greek text literally says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 is, to God's elect sojourners of the scattering or the dispersion. Now, that doesn't sound very promising, does it? Uh, when the Ark of the Covenant used to set off each morning in the wilderness, the cry would go up, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. So scattering is something you want to happen to your enemies, isn't it? It doesn't sound very good that as the new covenant people of God, we have been scattered. Seems strange, doesn't it? If the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is, is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, why should we be in such a position of social weakness as far as influence is concerned? We would have thought that if we were servants of the king, then we, we belong to the top table of national debate. If we are the sons of the king, then we should be part of the establishment. We should be exercising political power and authority in the country. And yet it's very clear from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, that that is not God's purpose for his church. What he says is that they are elect sojourners of the dispersion. In other words, they are God's scattered elect. Not that they are elect, great privilege, you have been chosen from the foundation of the world, positive, but sadly, negatively, you have been scattered, which is a terrible disadvantage, but you'll have to put up with it and console yourself with the fact that you are elect. No. He says you are elect sojourners. In other words, God has purposed from eternity past not only your salvation in Christ, but he has also purposed from eternity past your status as a sojourner in the world scattered through all the nations. In other words, this is part of God's purpose for, for God's people in the new covenant age. We are precisely intended to feel like strangers and we are intended to be scattered to accomplish God's good purposes in the world. And there are other places in the New Testament where it's very clear that the church is not to expect a position of special cultural or social or political privilege. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It's a pity, isn't it? Would have been wonderful if he'd chosen political leaders. Would have been wonderful if he'd chosen the business entrepreneurs. You know, we could do with some of the money of people like Richard Branson and all of those people. But God didn't choose people like that. He chose the weak people and the, and the, the foolish people like you and me. It's a great disappointment to us all. But that's how it is. So you say, well, if things are really as unpromising as that, should we despair of having any influence or impact on an unbelieving world? And the answer to that question is emphatically no. In fact, what Peter says is that our identity as a scattered people can work positively for the advantage of the cause of Christ. And that's true in two ways. It's true, first of all, because it's an advantage for the spread of the gospel. You think back to what, the, uh, what Luke tells us about the early church in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, we are told that those who had been scattered by the persecution, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You see, the whole point about scattering is that the gospel now is not limited, as it was in the old covenant, to one particular geographical strip of land just off the Mediterranean, attractive though it be. 
But the scattering now means that the gospel goes into all the ethnic tribes and groups and the nations around about. Even more interesting, in Acts chapter 11, you read, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. You see, scattering is the way God wants it to be for his new covenant people because it accomplishes his new covenant purpose, where now mission is not centripetal, sucking people in, but it is now centrifugal, where we are cast out to all the corners of the different ethnicities and tribes and nations of the world. You see, there's a wonderful flexibility and a freedom associated with the people of God being a scattered people. Because we're not now defined by a particular cultural boundary. There would be a positive disadvantage, for example, of the church being associated with a position of cultural or political privilege. Because if the church is associated with a position of cultural or political privilege, you immediately alienate half of the society who are naturally speaking are rebels and anarchists and sit, as it were, on the, on the wrong side of the railway tracks, culturally and politically. I mean, there are lots of people like that in the world, aren't there? And they, 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 they don't want to associate with the people on the right side of the railway tracks. It would, be, it would be a terrible disadvantage if the church was characterized by a particular class or by a particular degree of wealth or by a particular degree of power or influence or whatever it might be because immediately you alienate yourself from the people who are not in that category. The glory of God's people is that we are a scattered people, we are a diverse people and we are in many different cultural and geographical locations. That was the, the, the message the Apostle Peter had to learn in the book of Acts when he was called to preach to Cornelius. He said, I'm not going to a Gentile. I don't go to Gentiles. I don't eat unclean food. And he saw the sheet let down from heaven containing the unclean animals. He had to learn, no, no, the clean and the unclean are all null and void. No, the gospel now has to go to anywhere. No, there's no Jew, Jewish boundary markers anymore, you see. No cultural markers, no social boundaries anymore. The Apostle Paul learned, the, learned exactly the same thing. He says, I, I become all things to all men that I might win some for Christ. See, he says, if I'm Jewish, that's fine. If I'm trying to reach Jews, I'm, I'm, I'm more Jewish than the Jewish. He says, if I'm trying to reach the Gentiles, you wouldn't even know that I knew what it meant to be Jewish because, frankly, I become a Gentile. I'm completely indifferent to culture. I'm completely indifferent to ethnicity. All of my back, I'm prepared to discard it. That's not what it means now to be a member of the new covenant people of God. We're, we're supposed to be all-purpose men and women, as it were, for the sake of the gospel. So actually to be scattered through all the nations, it's a positive advantage for the gospel. That's the advantage of having churches, which hopefully, let's aspire to this, let's pray for this, to have churches that are not just white middle class, but churches that are actually multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-layers of wealth and poverty and white collar and blue collar and upper class and working class and whatever it might be, you see, mixed up educational backgrounds, whatever it might be, scattered people then who reach and permeate every corner of society for the sake of the gospel. But it also is an advantage, not just for the gospel, but also it's an advantage for godly influence in Society. Now, this, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? And, and you might wonder where this is going. How can the Christian Institute, for example, hope to effect any social change 
if we are a scattered people, alien strangers in the world, and therefore apparently politically impotent, with no strings to pull, as it were, of political privilege or, or preference or advantage. And that brings us to our final point, which is new covenant influence. Now, for these first century believers, things would have looked pretty bleak. Remember that the Apostle Peter was writing to the churches in the time of the Roman Empire, and Nero was the emperor. And we know what Nero used to do to Christians. Now, you think it's bad under David Cameron or, you know, whoever the next one's going to be, Ed Miliband or Nick Clegg or whatever. Well, you know, this is Nero. You know, this is not a man who recognizes Christian values exactly. He doesn't see eye to eye, does he? And you imagine what it feels like to be a Christian, a despised minority group in that, in that society. Well, they would have been tempted to despair of having any place in society whatsoever. So what does the Apostle Peter prescribe? Oh, he says, just keep your heads down and wait till the persecution's over. You know, you just want to avoid it. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says, do you know what you should do? What should be your modus operandi as the scattered people? What is the modus operandi of the new covenant people of God? And the answer is... Do good. Do good. Do as much, much good as you can, wherever you can. That's what the Apostle Peter's adage would have been. You see that in the context of gospel testimony in chapter 2 and verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the way you make an impact in society. See, it's nothing to do with being the majority. It's nothing to do with pulling political levers of power. It's nothing to do with having a situation of privilege. Live such godly lives. That's how you have traction in the world. That the pagans will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Ultimately, they'll be converted through that. What about political influence, Peter? Oh, he says, I wouldn't rule out political influence either. Well, how on earth are we going to influence a pagan and an ungodly and an idolatrous state? That's going to be hopeless, isn't it? No, he's not, he says. Chapter 2 and verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority. He says, or verse 14, or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. He says, don't despair of them. He says, I know Nero is the emperor, but he says, you know, even by common grace, even Nero, even the Roman authorities, by common grace, have something of the shreds of conscience left in them, you know. They still have some echo of understanding of the difference between right and wrong, he says. So don't despair, he says. In the same way, he says, verse 15, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, you see, that's how, in the New Covenant age, we fulfill our priestly ministry in the New Covenant age. In the Old Covenant age, teaching the law was a fairly obvious practice. The priests would teach the law from Israel, and the nations would come and they would learn. Now we're scattered. Well, you can't teach the law. You know, if you stand up on the street corner and start reciting the Ten Commandments, you might not make very much impact. But if you have such an outstandingly godly life, if you're a man or a woman of such integrity, if you are living for the glory of God, if you are so heavenly-minded that you're living for heaven and willing to sacrifice yourself and to submit and to be gracious and gentle, even when you're disadvantaged, even when you're discriminated against, well, then people are going to turn and they're going to say, you know, there's something, there's something extraordinary about those people. 
and it's going to change people, and it's going to start changing people's attitudes, even changing the attitudes of Nero and the like. It's also what the Apostle Paul commends in Romans chapter 13. He says, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. See, even the pagans know the difference between right and wrong. And Bruce Winter observes that in Rome, those who were recognized as being benefactors to the state, in other words, if you spent some money to feed the poor in a time of famine, or you provided funds for public works, or some other good deeds, you would be honored by the authorities. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, you Christians, you do that. You'd be such exemplary citizens that you will be honoured, you will be commended even by the pagan rulers. And even they are going to turn around and sit up and take notice. And they're going to say, look, look, look what they're doing amongst the, amongst, amongst the drug addicts. Wow, they're really, those Christians, they're really making a difference. Look, 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 look at what they're doing amongst those with learning difficulties. They take on the hard cases, don't they? These, you know, there's something about, you have to respect them. You know, you may disagree with them on all sorts of areas, not least their homophobia and all the rest of it. But, you know, you have to give them credit. There's something about these Christians. That's what the Apostle Peter is saying. He says, that's the way you make an impact. When you speak out on moral issues and you speak out against the evils of abortion, then even the pagans say, well, you know, when I look at that, you know, I think actually they've got a point. You know, I've always believed in abortion, but when I look at that ultrasound picture and they keep on talking against abortion and they seem to get so het up about it, but, you know, I, I, I think they may be right. Because actually a moral testimony about these, about these moral issues... And, you know, I think there's something true about what they say. We do need strong families, you know. You know, children, the latest scientific research, have you read it? Did you know it's extraordinary, it's revolutionary, we found out that children prosper better in, when they're brought up by married couples who are their biological parents. This is, well, I would have never expected that result. That's it. But the Christians, they're right, or, you see, it resonates. And that's what the Apostle Peter is saying. Keep speaking out on these moral issues. Keep doing good. That's the way in which you make an impact. That's what the prophet Jeremiah, even in Old Covenant days, this situation of exile was talking about. He says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, that's, that should be the burden of every Christian heart, that we look out on the nation of Britain and our hearts should be broken because the laws of God are being broken. And our, we, tears flow from my eyes, as the psalmist says, not only because we weep because the glory of God is being dishonored, but also because families are being broken up, the lives of young people are being destroyed by early sexual promiscuity or by broken family relationships and irresponsible parenting, whatever it might be, by abortionism, by a culture of embryology, by a culture of euthanasia and failed medical ethics. There are so many things going wrong in our society because of drugs and alcohol abuse and the lottery and the greed and the materialism and all of these things. And yes, it should. we plead to God for our nation. Seek the prosperity of the city. If you have any heart for the culture and the nation in which you live, then Peter says, do good, speak up about it. And the light will shine. Jesus says, let your light shine. Be salt, be light, engage. 
Now, you see, that's very different, isn't it, from social withdrawal, just saying we will be holy by stepping back. Oh, no, I don't want to get involved. I heard today of one minister who says, I will pray for politicians, but I will never engage in this political sphere. Well, you see, that's social withdrawal, isn't it? Nor does the Apostle Peter commend sort of hostile culture wars. Right, I'm going to go into battle these wretched pagans that don't know what they're talking about. David Cameron is so ignorant, he's so immoral, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And this sort of abusive, unsub- no, says the Apostle Peter, be submissive, be gentle, be gracious, show honour, show proper respect. God has appointed David Cameron and even Nick Clegg as his servants within the government. You have to honour them because in the providence of God, those are the people God has put it. You may not like it. Well, you're arguing with God. It's God who put them there. Actually, says Peter, you be respectful to them. You show them honour. But do good. Now, you see, these good works may be many and varied in different ways. But the important point is that, you see, Christian believers scattered into many different geographical locations and cultures and various strata of society. We're all doing good in our different ways, bearing testimony with our lives of integrity and godliness and distinctiveness and light. You see, in his sovereignty, God has chosen us and scattered us throughout the world to the different corners of society. Just like uh, Daniel with a testimony of godly integrity within the civil service of, of Babylon. It's what, uh, well, the, the, the whole point of being salt, isn't it? To be salt in the ancient world is you had to be rubbed into the meat which it preserves. No point keeping it in the salt pot. You have to rub it in, don't you? It has to be in contact with the meat it's going to preserve. The particles of salt have to be scattered throughout it, through the whole. And the salt has power, just as the testimony of good deeds have power, to transform what is unclean into what is clean. But remember once more the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. See, remember that he ate and drank with sinners. And remember the most remarkable thing about the Lord Jesus is that he reached out and touched the unclean. What's even more remarkable is that when he touched the unclean, far from being contaminated and becoming unclean himself, he made the unclean clean. That's the opposite of the way the Moses law is supposed to work, isn't it? But Jesus touched the leper, and Jesus didn't become unclean. The leper became clean. You know, Jesus invited Zacchaeus, or invited himself round to Zacchaeus for tea, and Jesus didn't become unclean by conversation with a tax collector, Zacchaeus' life was transformed into a clean life, righteously speaking. Now that's precisely the power of new covenant ministry, of spiritual and moral purity in a corrupt world. That's the testimony of believers through the ages. I don't need to enumerate the ways in which Christians have had a positive impact in the world. Right through from opposition to infanticide in the early church, to the dignity of women, opposition to sooty and, and foot-binding, through the provision of health care, education, the abolition of slavery, the education of girls, so on and so on and so on and so forth. But I mean, that's do good, do good, do good, do good. That's the point. See, we're no longer in the position of Old Testament Israel, whose prophets might denounce the pagan practices of Gentile nations from afar or by the exceptional missionary visit of Jonah. No, our scattered status means that we as citizens of heaven permeate the societies of the world to bring godly values on every part of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that our good deeds will always be well received. Daniel was persecuted precisely because his integrity shamed his peers. The Christians in Peter's day were sometimes ridiculed for their godly lifestyle. But Peter urges them to persevere. 
Now, think of the impact of the early church in the city of Jerusalem. We're told the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to, uh, used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So that's the example. So in other words, the key to influencing and transforming an ungodly society in the New Covenant age is the distinctive moral and spiritual godliness of God's people, the purity of God's people, morally and spiritually speaking. Now the way in which we will make zero impact is if the church is a mixed multitude, is if the church is lukewarm, is if the church is, is muddled in its moral thinking or in its preaching of the gospel. Well, then the world is just going to look around and say they're no different to the rest of us. They can't even get their own act together. You know, they, they don't even know what they think. They all talk at cross purposes most of the time. But if we are a people born again by the Spirit of God, and we are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the gospel, and we're committed to living godly lives, that's what makes a real impact in a pagan world under the blessing of God. Let's just say a few things by way of conclusion. The dawn of the new covenant age transforms the place of God's people in the world. Rather than being a distinct nation defined by geographical location and political organization, we are now a scattered people through all the nations, cultures, classes, and vocations in the world. We're not a holy nation like Israel, in the sense of being set apart from the world socially and culturally, shining a light into distant nations in the hope that they would be attracted to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Rather, we are a holy nation in the sense that we are to live godly lives full of good works in whatever part of the culture and society the Lord has called us to. We are to resist the temptation to return to the nation status of Old Testament Israel, whether that be by social separation or by cultural militancy and hostility. No, the testimony of Christian believers is by humble, submissive, respectful, patient work of doing what is right and good. And our goal, our ultimate goal, is not the establishment of some Christian nation, because that's not what's promised in the New Testament. Rather, we are motivated by a desire to honor God and to express our love for our fellow men and women as we seek the peace and the prosperity where we live. And that includes, most of all, the moral and the spiritual prosperity of the place where we live. The results of our testimony are in God's hands. But at the heart of our testimony is the nature of the new covenant people of God. What sets us apart from the world is that we are born again by the Spirit of God and committed to godliness. Robert Murray McShane is said to have said, My people's greatest need is their minister's personal holiness. Well, it might equally be said, Our nation's greatest need is the church's godliness. Our consistent testimony to the gospel, its abundance of good works, and the clarity of its moral and spiritual testimony. And those are the means by which we are to influence and by the grace of God transform the society in which we live. Thank you very much indeed, Bill. You may want to lob in some questions. 
I got two questions for you, Bill. Yes, go, Colin. Isn't it hard for us because actually the Christians that have lived in this country have done precisely what you've been saying? Right. Okay. For for about two or three hundred years, right? We have had remarkable level of freedom and pervasive influence because of spiritual revivals and faithfulness, gospel faithfulness. So now we're going back to New Testament times. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, it's perhaps more normal for Christians yeah, in, the, yeah, in the world. Yeah, yeah. So it's very hard for us to cope with this transition, which is, is what we're yeah, seeing. Is, yeah. And we don't know the future. Yeah. We don't know what will happen. Uh, we do know, I suppose, if we are faithful today, then God will in some way bless that faithfulness. But we don't know yeah. the future for our nation, really. Yeah. But it is hard for us to think like that when we've been used to so many things where you've had God-fearing politicians, they may not have been Christians, that have done the right thing. Yeah, and in some ways I wish we weren't where we are today and I rather fear for where we might be tomorrow because it might be even worse. But I think the point is that our obligation is to persevere in doing good and we just have to leave the consequences in, in God's hands. In other words, there's a parallel here with gospel ministry, isn't there? Because, I mean, as a church... We have to preach, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. But we cannot engineer the response of, of people. You know, the, the number of conversions is not proportionate to the amount of gospel preaching or activity in which we engage, or even the amount of prayer in which we engage. And it's exactly the same in this sphere, I think. You know, we would love the nation to be in a different place to where it is, but we can't engineer that, as it were. We just have to keep on being faithful and pray and trust the Lord. You know, I mean, Isaiah, you know. Well, that's just, this is my question. Yeah. Uh, that, that was, I've given a statement, and here's my question. Yeah. Um, just back to Isaiah, aren't these pointing to a future of uh, the, Isaiah? Is he also pointing to, to the nations coming to Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, as well as... Yeah, yeah. Y- y- yes, yes, he is. And I think, actually, the prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled. But, but I, I think the prophecy of Isaiah have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled in that the nations are streaming to Zion, which is the, new, the heavenly Zion, as it were, in that people from every tribe and nation and tongue are being converted and coming to Christ and becoming members of the new Israel of God. So I don't have a problem with that. And in a sense, I think that the Bible is not that concerned in, in, in terms of absolute numbers. It's representatives of all the nations are coming, are coming to God. So yes, I do see that, yeah. I'm going to make a sweeping generalization, Mm. but just to make a point. I think churches, certainly the ones that I know, are very good at inviting people to come to them. Yes, yes. Not particularly good at going out. In a city of 300,000, which is roughly the population of Newcastle, what sort of things would you expect to see Bible-believing Christians doing outside the walls of the places where they worship? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. I think at the foundation of it has to be a commitment of every single Bible-believing Christian. In other words, don't start with the question, what should the church be doing about it? In a sense, the commitment starts with the responsibility of every single Bible-believing Christian, as Peter says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. In other words, our responsibility is to be godly and to be ready and positively willing and proactive in engaging people with the gospel personally. I mean, I find it's true in my church, it's probably true in yours as well. We're absolutely brilliant at putting on the most fabulous evangelistic events of all different types and shapes and colours. 
But actually, the only people who come to those events are the people who've been personally invited and witnessed to and, and who've made a, a godly impact on the lives of people. And that's why they come to the events. And actually, you could have a completely rubbish event, actually, and the, the unbelievers would still come because actually it's that personal testimony that actually makes the difference. And, and, and we need to think of it holistically as well. So in other words, the idea of being a godly testimony in the workplace, a godly testimony in the community, to the neighbours, all those areas. We need to permeate every area. Before I ask my question, I just want to say, as a blind person, it's a real a magnificent missionary station because people have to talk to me and I make the most of it. And it's been thrilling to have some solid teaching. Um, Is it okay um, for churches to to go to um, Sikh temples or mosques? Um, You know, they... They're coming from the point of view, well, we want to share and we, we want to show them we love them. But at the same time, um, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just wondered, please. Yeah, well, that's very interesting because I'm just about to go to a Sikh temple, actually. We have a lovely lady in our congregation who's a converted Sikh. And she wants to take myself and my wife to the Sikh temple and show us round and introduce us to the Sikh folks. And she says they'll absolutely be delighted to engage with you. I don't think we'll be making an offering. Um, so, so in other words, you, you draw the line at participating in the pagan sacrifice, as it were. Uh, but certainly you want to go and engage with these people and engage with them at the temple. You see, the other thing is, for what we might misunderstand, is that for the Sikhs, the temple, apart from anything else, is the centre of their social activity. If you go and visit the, the Sikh temple, they feel under social obligation to give you a meal. They're extremely hospitable people, you see. So that's the way of us saying, look, I'm really interested in you and I want to meet you on your territory. Well, I think that's exactly what Christians should be doing, isn't it, really? Um, thank you for your lecture. Okay. Uh, do you think it's possible for a government to be religiously neutral? That's a very difficult question. No government is religiously neutral. Uh, because every government has, and, and the different members of the government all have prior moral, moral and spiritual convictions. And essentially they will, they will vary from a very warm embrace of biblical Christianity right through to adamant hostility towards it. And so you will always have that spectrum. And I think in the first century the Roman Empire was not neutral. And yet the Apostle Peter still commanded the Christians to be respectful and to be submissive and to keep doing good. Should we be happy to be in a secular democracy, or do you think we should desire to see a more firmly Christian society? Uh, 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 that question answers itself, doesn't it? I would love to be in a society where people love God's laws, where people want to live for the glory of God, and you know, the more revival we see, and the more we see that, then the more I will shout hallelujah, and the more we have politicians and we have a government that you know, embraces the gospel and lives, and lives and rules according to godly principles. I think the better and the more prosperous the nation will be. Obviously, that's wonderful. And, and that's the whole point of 1 Timothy 2. Pray for those who are rulers and in authority over you because, you know, uh, Christ is the saviour of all people, even politicians. I mean, that's the implication of what Paul's saying in those verses, isn't it? We should pray for our politicians along those lines. But equally, while we, asp- we aspire for that and we long for that, there's two things that we have to acknowledge. The first is that we can't necessarily control that outcome, however much we long for it. And the second thing is that we have to acknowledge is that even if all the members of the government were born-again Christians 
and all the legislation in the nation was godly legislation, if the hearts of the people in the nation are not changed, then ultimately those laws are going to be broken and ultimately those laws are going to fall into... In other words, however good your government might be doesn't necessarily mean your society is wholesome. So actually you need to pray not only for a transformed government but also for a revival that transforms the body of society as well. Just follows on um, by your comment about the Sikh temple. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned the exclusive brethren. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the polar opposite of that is I had a friend one time who... Um, went to a nightclub and yeah. had played Christian music in his in yeah. his, in his yeah. ears and danced to the music, yeah. and he saw that as evangelism. Yeah. Um, are there principles? Would you say in in terms of being um, in the world but not of the world? Yes, I think you've just articulated the principle, but 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 it, but it's a question of godly wisdom as to how do you how you work that out. I mean, obviously, going to a nightclub and dancing to Christian music in your headphones is not evangelism. Because, because, because unless, unless the other people in the nightclub were extraordinarily supernaturally spiritually perceptive, I don't think they could even have worked out, A, that this brother was a Christian, or B, that he was playing Christian music through his headphones. So I don't think it would have made the least iota of difference to them. What about the uh, middle cases like pop evangelism? Well, again, it's a question of godly wisdom. You see, I mean, if you go into the pub to evangelise and you're knocking back your eighth pint and enjoying you know, really good fellowship with your unbelieving friends, that might be a little bit unwise. But on the other hand, a pub might be the ideal environment in which to... I mean, I know locally evangelical churches in in Leamington have done this, and they call it Pints of View. And, you know, they, they, they have a room in the pub, and they just have an open discussion about Christianity or about issues of the day from a Christian point of view. I think it's brilliant. So, uh, but it's, it's godly wisdom. You know, you have to be careful where you draw the lines, don't you? It's, do you think that the failed experiment of, of Israel, as you'd refer to it, yeah. has yeah. anything to say to, to Christian reconstructionism? Um, well, okay, well, should we just explain? Christian reconstructionism is the application of the whole of the Old Testament Moses economy to the present day, is that right? And to, in, to incorporate it in national legislation today, is, I think it's misguided on both levels. I think it's misguided on the level that actually... You know, now the new covenant, covenant has arrived, so the civil and ceremonial legislation of Moses has been abolished anyway. So I, I, think it's, I think it's just misguided on that level. But also it's, it's, it's misguided on the level that you can believe that just because your legislative structure is perfect, that actually then your, your nation will be sorted. Because I think the problem with Israel is that actually if people are not regenerate... Actually, um, in, in the... The nation are not regenerate. Yes. That's the Achilles heel yes. of, of the yes. idea. Yes. Uh, basically, yes. is it? Would you yes. say? Yes. Yes. Because yes. actually, the function of the law just convicts them of sin. Basically, I mean, I mean, okay. I mean, perhaps I've been too extreme. On that. I mean, obviously, law law has another function, doesn't it? Law has another function of limiting evil. So, I, so I, okay. I don't want to paint it, paint it in such black and white terms. So, for example, you know, you can have laws against, for example you know, rape and murder and theft, and the people in Britain are unregenerate, and perhaps they would want, to, perhaps they are inhibited from doing those things because there is very fierce legislation prohibiting us from doing such things. So law can have a restrictive, a helpful restrictive boundary effect. But what I'm saying is, even if you have the whole of the Ten Commandments in your legislation, it doesn't mean that you end up with an ideal society, does it? Yeah. Um, thank you. I think you have gone a little way to clarify and question my mind. Just taking the example of Daniel, yeah. I really wasn't clear by the end of the lecture whether you were criticising Daniel yeah. or commending him. I mean, yeah. 
one of the reasons I do the, the work at the Christian Institute is yeah. because I believe whatever the outcome, a law that reflects God's moral law yeah. is intrinsically right yes, and I agree. For, the, for the good of people. I agree. And that even if that's ignored or broken in part, that by promoting that we're doing something that glorifies God. I agree. I'm not saying that that would ever convert someone, but... It seemed I wasn't really clear whether you were undermining that motivation for our work in what you were saying, for example, about Daniel. I certainly wouldn't want to undermine any of that because I agree with everything you've said in terms of God's moral law being good and wholesome and anything that does good to promote it will be helpful and positive. Yes, I agree. All I'm saying is that law in and of itself will not transform a society without, without the regenerating spirit of God. Coming back to what you said about Daniel, I'm not trying to be critical of Daniel. I'm a great Daniel fan. All I'm saying is Daniel was Jewish. So he was grappling with his friends. How, how can you sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land? How are we going to operate as Jewish people in a pagan culture? So they had this sort of social separation of the table fellowship, and he used to pray facing Jerusalem, didn't he? I think um, part of the problem is that we don't really value Um, each individual believer. Um, We often want them to join in our programs and commit themselves to certain things. But what we seldom do is to teach them the value of themselves, to teach them the dynamic that is already in them. Yes. And so we prepare God's people for works of service. Yes, yes, yes. And we don't allow people to understand the dynamic of service wherever they are, whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That in in their obedience, a simple obedience, a righteousness that is of faith is being revealed in every single act of love, of kindness, or of doing good. But there is also a dynamic. And rather than uh, form programs that keep the church going as a building, as an organization, as a program, we need to release the potential within every individual believer because they are every grain of salt and light and pepper. And they season. They season the meal that God is preparing for the world to eat. Yeah, I couldn't put it better myself. Yeah, Righteousness does not consist in the number of church meetings you go to. Can I say thank you very much again to Bill for the lecture tonight and for being prepared to answer our questions. Thanks very much indeed.